Welcome to Supervision Simplified, the podcast that's here to rock your supervisory world. Our mission is simple yet powerful, to educate and elevate counselors, social workers, and psychologists, empowering them to serve their communities at the highest level of fidelity and service. I'm Dr. Amy Parks. I'm a child and teen psychologist, a group practice owner, and a supervisor in Virginia. And I'm Valerie Harris, a trauma and attachment specialist, group practice owner, and a supervisor in Tennessee. Let's make it simple and dive right in. Hi, welcome back to Supervision Simplified, our podcast about all things supervision and I am one of your hosts, Dr. Amy Parks. I'm Valerie Harris. And we're excited to be with you today. We're still coming to you live from Nashville, but I guess we're not really going to be live. We're going to be recorded, but we're here live and in person, and uh, we're doing this video vidcast podcast thing here together, and we're really excited to um, be putting together this um this offering, which is the ultimate podcast for mental health cl clinical supervisors. So um, we're going to be down and supervisees will find value. Absolutely. Supervision seekers as well. Absolutely. No doubt. So we're going to be delving into the world throughout our podcast episodes uh, of supervision, sharing mindful insights and insightful stories uh, and thought provoking conversations with clinicians that are seeking, providing and supporting supervision. Yes. So today we're going to talk a little bit about the idea of the power of supervision and how it can be very transformative for um, both the supervisor and the supervision seeker. So we're going to talk about the um, the mission of supervision and how powerful it can be, and and a little bit about that relational sort of experience that is between the supervisor and the supervisee. So yeah. So what are you thinking about that, Valerie? I think of supervision like this. So one of the things that I will often tell clients as an informed consent um, part of an informed consent to kind of help them to illustrate what the therapeutic journey should feel like is I will tell them, you know, this is something where you should feel like I'm walking alongside of you. So there might be times where you might feel me nudge you a little, or there may be times where you might feel me pull you back a little, but you should never feel like I'm shoving or dragging you. Um, you should feel like I'm checking in and maybe a little of this just to give them an idea of what it's supposed to feel like. Um, and so in that same realm, when I think about supervision, I immediately, the first thing that comes to mind is that relationship and the relational dynamic and it being a vehicle on their journey, a way to, to come alongside and walk with as they go through this next developmental phase. And so I think about different ways to illustrate that to them so that they understand what that should feel like and what it can feel like um, initially. Yeah. So it's about shaping the, the clinician and also, um, being open to whatever shape maybe they're going to transform into. So it's kind of, again, like you're saying the ability to sort of walk next to and hold space for whatever is going to come. And it comes from a, you know, really foundational level of trust and respect and also collaboration. And so, you know, a lot of times I've worked with supervisees and students who have had supervisors that didn't necessarily align with their values or weren't working in the areas of specialty that were important to them or that, um, you know, misgendered them sometimes. I mean, there are a variety of different um, ways that 
that relationship can be potentially harmful. And of course, a lot of millions of ways that it can be transformative. So we're going to be talking a little bit about all of those kinds of things today. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you one of the things that I was curious about, um, and I know we talked about, was talking about how you initially engage your supervisees. So, you know, for instance, I know with students, they come in and and they're usually very anxious and nervous. Some are not, but most are. And, you know, I, being that I work with so much trauma, like one of the things that I always think about, and you probably do too, is the brain and the neuroscience and how to create that curiosity or get the attention of that lower brain so that it can help bring balance to these thoughts that are just railing them all at once. And so I'll, I'll say things that have a little bit of a shock value to it so that they, it gets that attention of the emotional brain and kind of creates the balance. It takes the seriousness down. So it's serious, but in a, in a more humanized way. So I would tell them, do not sleep with your client. Okay. Don't do that. Right. Don't abandon them. Do not assault them. We can probably work through just about anything else. Yeah. If you can tell me as soon as you're aware that there's an issue and let me know one of two things. Let me know when you come out of session and you say, I don't like that person. I cannot work with them. Or you get really excited about working with someone or you come out of session and they make you feel like a million bucks. And then you think about the next time you're going to see them and maybe even think about the, the outfit that you're going to wear and all the, you know, the, all the like different clues that could lead to some emerging countertransference stuff coming up. I tell them those and they're like, huh? But I find that just telling them some of these things from the outset takes the shame away when they happen. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to talk about all of those kinds of things in anticipation of them actually happening because they are normal parts of the process. Mm-hmm. Not certainly having sex with your clients, but you know, having or your supervisees. Um, but of course, but also being in an experience where you um, and we're talking about supervision, supervisors to supervisees, and you're saying this is what you're telling your 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 supervisees and working with their clients. But you know the point is is that you're normalizing things that they're going to feel and experience and and notice about themselves, which is raising their sort of level of um, connection to their work, so that they are really just paying closer attention. I think that one of the things we start with um, all the time with supervisors that I work with and that I consult with is this idea of, you know, when you're present, it's important to be really present. And uh, so really trying to really attune with your supervisee or, you know, teaching your clinician that you're working with to really attune with their client. So in that early supervisory relationship, yeah, we talk about those, all those kind of things and normalize those experiences really early on because sometimes they've talked about them in grad school and sometimes they haven't. Right. And I'm curious, how, how do you go about teaching attunement? I feel like attunement is a very difficult thing to teach. We talk about, I'll talk about, think about a country song or a you know, electronic dance music in it to train wreck the beats off. Or I will say, remember when you were a teenager and you said this one thing and your mom said something else back and you're like, you're not even listening to me. Like that's an excellent example of a misattunement. Which So that's easier to teach, but what's harder to teach is almost how to trust their educated guests in their intuit, like their 
their clinical intuition and how to like lean into that. And I find some people are much better equipped at that um, if they're more highly sensitive, like in their nervous system. So empaths, sometimes they have to modulate that a little more because it's easy for them to just attune. But for others, um, it's very difficult. Well, I think that, you know, it's, it's interesting because a lot of supervisors don't require video. And um, I think when you do require video, it doesn't have to be a video of every session. Mm-hmm. It can be one video a quarter or yep. even That's one what we do. Two, two videos a year. It doesn't have to be a lot. It has to be, but having video of your clinician with a few clients, one or two clients or several, especially if you have concerns about things like attunement, um, that can be really critical to helping you figure out what's what's happening. Yes. So I think that you could walk back and do the teaching, but I think until you can observe it and experience it with them, it's really hard to do. So I certainly try to model a lot of that when I'm in supervision. I try mm-hmm. to really pace myself with where they are. I try to sort of practice by body language and try to, you know, attune and to connect with their body language as well. Um, and I try also to not... Um, to be, to, I, I try also to be attuned with them in such a way that when they are overcharged or over excited about something, I can regulate that. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but until I think you observe it and then you can point it out, I don't know if it's really easy to teach per se. It's definitely not. I have found some different um, episodes on different shows I love to use. TV for mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm watching something and I will catch it and I'm like, oh my God, that is a beautiful example. Of so really- like, what's an example? Oh, well, there's a Grey's Anatomy one. Oh. I have to look it up, but there's okay. this great one where um, Christina Yang is in the operating room and she has endured trauma from, you know, well, she's got a lot of trauma, but from the shooting or something. So she goes to operate and she drops everything and she cannot do it. Well, um, Meredith is up in the, you know, in the galley or whatever, watching down and sees her freeze in that moment. And she hits the floor and everyone else is like yelling her name, like, get up. What are you doing? Mm -hmm. Meredith recognizes right away. She needs me. She is not okay. And she goes right to her, lays down beside her and mirrors her. And she goes and and Yang says, I can't do this. I can't, I can't move my legs. Like she's like, it's okay. We don't have to, mm-hmm. we don't have to, mm-hmm. we're just going to sit right here. We're going to like, she comes along and co-regulates her in the most yeah. beautiful attuned way while those around her were doing everything that was not well attuned. Yeah. So I found using clips like that have been really instrumental in helping them see what attunement looks like in action and then creating the the mismatch to that of what it doesn't look like so that even early on they can start catching those things in sessions that they may observe or in the videos so we required videos of all of our clinicians as well mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's great even yeah. once licensed yeah because I we love work that. with trauma there's a lot of elements of trauma work that's that are above and beyond and very different from pacing and attachment stuff so it just it really does help. I'd love for us to find that clip, Valerie, and we can put it in the mysteriously not 
created show notes that we might have. I'm so pretty that sure that can I, reference them. Yes, I already have it. Okay. I, have it I don't know where we'll share that, but somewhere along the line, we'll share that so that you could use that in session with your supervisees mm -hmm. and talk about and have this specific conversation um, about attunement. Um, what about the idea of um, continuous learning and fostering, you know, development in continuous learning after um, school for your supervisees? Yes. So, well, for our clinicians and for our supervisees, so we have multiple consult groups. Um, so we have a, a monthly consult group for EMDR therapists. We have one for brain spotting therapists. We have one for uh, trauma-informed hypnosis. We have one for safe and sound protocol. We have one for lens therapy. And then we also have one that we're starting in July it's a complex, um, complex trauma case uh, consult group. So that will be with me. And we have certain levels of risk that we identify people either like a one, two or three. So a one may be more of like acute traumas or recent acute traumas or, you know, recent suicide attempts, suicidality. A two may be more of the chronic things. So maybe, you know, borderline personality, maybe a history of complex trauma, um, maybe, you know, working in high risk professions where they're prone to vicarious trauma and compassion fatigue. And then level three is anybody that's a level two who's experiencing something of a level one. So if you, you know, right. um, and so we've kind of just rated it in that way and we have different different things that we do when people are out of town or if someone goes on maternity leave or things like that to just try to mitigate those risks, but to also make sure that we're balancing caseloads a little better and that they're, that we're really putting policies in place and support in place for all of our clinicians because of the amount of risk that we have and the complexity, because you cannot, you just can't, license or no license, you can't treat that level of complexity or high risk in a vacuum and not and expect to right. survive. Right. And I think a lot of uh, practices and businesses and hospital settings and a lot of places where people are working have the same sort of scenario. So not all of them have structured consultation groups like you have, but they can be incredibly valuable. And if your business or your practice or your setting, your agency doesn't have consultation groups that are like that, then um, what are some ways that we could figure out? I mean, certainly I know the clinical supervision directory is moving forward with putting together some more broad themed consultation groups. Um, and how do you feel like people can look for consultation groups like yours outside in sort of the environment? Like, do we, are people posting consultation groups? I think that people post them online, things they like that. They do sometimes. I know that EM, for EMDR, there's an actual EMDR learning community, which is phenomenal. It's an app. A lot of people post their consult groups there. Some of them are free. Some of them are paid. Um, I would think that- I think there's definitely DBT consultation groups. Absolutely. I would think that if, you know- when So I, modality specific. I think so. I think that that would be helpful. You're sort of emphasizing- well, you're emphasizing modality specific mm -hmm. ones, I guess. Um, and some so of that is from an SOP standpoint. Like I want to make sure that newer clinicians, even though they're trained in EMDR, like resourcing is very important and you don't want to rush that process. Right. And so we want them to bring those cases and that case conceptualization to that consult group before we're even processing with those clients to make sure that we're not doing harm. So I would think that 
it, I would feel, I feel like getting modality specific would be maybe the easiest way to connect with others in the community who would be interested. Yeah. Um, and then just setting something up if you have space and, you know, it could be just volunteer, just, Hey, who wants to come do this? Right. Exactly. Do we want to keep it open? Do we want to have it closed? Even online. I mean, you and I have something that we, yep. we consult with each other on the, on a, weekly basis. Right, exactly. exactly. You know, the other thing too, I think that's really important is um, if you are, every state in the country allows for individual and group supervision. So at different ratios, depending on where you are and um, all psychologists, marriage and family therapists, counselors, social workers, all of them allow for group therapy. I mean, group supervision and individual. Yeah. So many people, however, don't participate in group supervision. Are you serious? Oh, so many people. We have a group every yeah, month for two hours. Right. Like, it's a big deal. I wish yeah. we could have more group. We offer a four-hour supervision group monthly. And oh, I like that. Well, because we have so many hours we have to get, 4,000 hours in Virginia. True. That's true. Um, and so and so that's like an, the equivalent of a week of individuals. So, like, it's one hour a week for – so – and and – that we can have a maximum, you can have a maximum of six people in a group. Um, that's the way the- We can have eight. Okay, so mm -hmm. we can have six people. And it's really great because four hours allows everyone to get about 25 to 30 minutes of a case conceptualization, as well as feedback from the whole group. And I think it's just, it amazes me how few people um, do dyads, how few people do mm -hmm. group supervision. I just think it's a really huge disservice because if you're not, especially if you don't have opportunities for consultation groups. I think if you're not doing group, I think it diminishes the, yes. the confidence of the clinician to not have other people that they're consulting with. I think it's, I don't know. I don't, I want I don't want to go so far as to say it's, it's not proper supervision, but I don't think it's, I don't, the best. Think, it's I don't fully, think it's best. I don't think it's fully um, like um, there's a word for it, but I don't, I just don't think it's like, I don't think best yes. practices. Yeah. I think about best practices because if somebody is in a group in my practice and they can learn to speak up in front of their peers and admit to some vulnerabilities or some ways they're feeling limited sure, and they're yeah. struggling, they're going to be more likely to reach out to other professionals. They're going to be more likely. We, we don't have individual offices. We have, we share those spaces on a schedule and then they have a, they have two collaborative spaces, workspaces. So there, but it was because I I worked in treatment centers and I learned the value very quickly of group supervision, um, group therapy, and treatment team meetings. And and we had them in psych hospitals. And so when I got into private practice, I was lonely and I was like, this is miserable. I could yeah. not find anybody to consult with, and you weren't around, and you and what you built wasn't around. And so it felt that created more imposter syndrome than anything because I just felt like I didn't, I needed more information and couldn't find it in like readily available. And I needed it through connection and relationship. And so we want to foster that almost like the golden thread of a treatment plan. Right. We want to foster that like a golden thread of their development so that it is so, it, it is so part of the DNA of their development that they will never want to not have that in some capacity so that when they go to create impact in the world long past what they're doing with us, it will continue to foster that same type of connection in that same, 
best practice in, in, you know, iron sharpens iron. You know, what's really tricky too is paying attention. And I know we'll be talking about this in future episodes with our colleagues and each other, but the, paying attention to what your clinician, what the supervisee is presenting as what they want from supervision and what you are offering. Because I know that I have seen supervisees in a supervisory relationship say, oh, but I don't really want group supervision. I'm yes. fine having individual. I'm having too much. I feel like we have too much. That I got well, that. And I'm one. like really like um, no. I'm sorry, but I'm not going to allow that. Like I don't think that again. It's not. It's not. I, I can't think of the word. But it's not fiduciary or whatever. It's not high fidelity supervision. If you just allow someone to only just have private supervision for. Two years essentially is what we do. What we do in Virginia, Absolutely. No, and never too. having case consulted. I mean, rarely case consulting with other colleagues. It doesn't mean they don't talk, or they're only bringing you the cases they're comfortable with individually. Versus, I mean, oh yeah, well, that happens too. We I mean, require them to have certain cases. In the first question, I require every supervisor to ask on an individual supervision session is are there any ethical things that we need to be mindful of like it has to be documented in the note but even just giving them primers that you can do in a group supervision so i could show that attunement piece and then i could ask in like provoke the group with the question of i want you to list the clients now that you feel most attuned with and the ones you feel least attuned with and i want you to write the traits of the things that show you that you feel attuned and maybe you don't know take your best guess in the things that don't and then we go around and we share and we talk about those things right and so now, now you're going to have to bring more than just whatever case you think is like priority in that moment not that we, we can get to that but now we're having different layers of yeah. supervision i like that strategy and i think i'm going to try it too with my supervisees giving them the video and then saying even if I just do it in advance of our session, like, okay, here's this video. And I want you to think about the clients in your care that you are most attuned with. And I want you to identify what makes that true for you. And then when we meet for supervision, we're going to be talking, talk about that. That doesn't mean that your relationship with the other clients is wrong or bad. It just means that you're paying more attention to what attunement means. If they have the right meaning of it. So sometimes what we see early on and I'm sure I was the same. I'm sure I was the same because I didn't know what I didn't know is someone they may feel well attuned with will be someone who gives them a lot of affirmation. Mm, mm, mm. So well, that's why you have to show the video, I think. because then Yeah. Just, so then they'll feel like, well, the, yeah. this is the person. And so what would even be really cool is to have them do that work before showing the video. Oh, do. Oh, that's a great then idea. You so can show you know, the incongruence. And then say, okay, so what were the. Yeah. So you're saying, what are the traits that make you feel attuned to this person? Yeah. And hope that actually they say, they give me a lot of positive affirmation. So you can say, hmm, that's actually not really attuned. That's actually someone who's confirming some insecurities that you may have. your insecurity. Yeah, yes. Exactly. And so that's, so that's perfect different. Example. Yeah, perfect example of how. And they'll feel misattuned to the one who doesn't give a lot of feedback yeah. and I'm like, so that's creating more insecurity. So that's, that's your, <laughs> the attunement is definitely totally not client. I am totally going to do that. And it's an example of really how the transformative power of supervision and talking it through can really help people move. And then, you know, in, in my particular 
work. We work with tons of kids and teens. So we're also working with parents. And then we have to not only know how to attune and what attunement means and what it looks like, but then we have to go back and get to expert status by teaching it to other people. And so that is, you know, I mean, obviously you can teach it to adults in, in your world too, but we're really doing that's we're different. To it. There's a lot of personal overla- over lot of overlapping there, yeah. not to mention all the attachment pieces, which we'll get into at a different time. But just the, you know, the role of a supervisor oftentimes is not a parent, but we can get put in the parent role because we are still in a position of power and authority. Yep. But then you introduce the fact that y'all have parents. So I know when we treat, we don't treat as many kids and, and teens, but we have a lot of them. We just, it's a, it's a lot more balanced than, than your practice, but there are times where it's that alignment piece. So they're so aligned to that teen or that client that it's almost as if like the parent is the automatic enemy. And I remember in my own supervision experience way back when my supervisor did this phenomenal thing in my undergrad internship where one week I would be in the adolescent unit spending time with the adolescents. The next week I would be in the family program meeting the parents of these kids. So by the time I would get to this family program, you just know I had all kinds of preconceived notions about these parents oh, right? because right. I had a hard time as a teenager and I felt misunderstood and these kids are suffering and their parents, blah, blah, blah. And I remember my supervisor saying, Valerie, one thing you need to remember, no parent wakes up and says, how, let me count the ways I can mess up my kid today. Right. Like no one, everyone is doing the best they can with what they have. And I know that seems like the most common sense thing to say as I sit here in my forties, but me in my twenties, I needed to hear that. There was something transformative about that statement that allowed me repair with my own parents Mm. and Mm. some of the things that I was probably still holding them accountable for you know, in my relationship or whatever that I was able to really just lean into, but also giving myself grace as a parent of little ones at that time. So had, had I not had those group experiences and even the different experiences like that in the, like I would have, who knows? Well, and being able to process all that is really key. So I'm really excited to talk about in our future episodes, this idea of how we recreate relationships in supervision and how we do that also in client work, but all pointing it out specifically in supervision so that we can help supervisees and the supervision supervisors that we work with notice those kinds of things. So we're going to be sharing that in the future. Right now we're going to wrap up and we're going to be um, bringing lots more to you in, in the next few weeks. We're really excited about that. Remember that this is a revolution and the revolution starts here. So until next time, Keep simplifying and elevating your supervision game. It was great having you today. Have yes, a great day. and make sure you leave us comments. Absolutely. I love conversation. So give me comments, give us questions. We will pick them up and we will work with them. We Promise. will do that. Absolutely. See you soon. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Supervision Simplified. Remember, the revolution starts here. We hope you'll subscribe and that you'll share it with your friends and colleagues. We also want your comments, stories, and feedback so we can be sure to be talking about what interests you the most. Until next time, keep on simplifying and elevating your supervision game.